So thank you, Zobia. What I want to do today is um, um, give you a, a glimpse of some of the things that I've been thinking about uh, in the light of uh, a long debate that is still going on and have, has not abated on um, you know, the, the debate between you know, what is a sacred structure, where it should be put up, and uh, what does it mean about India's uh, sort of essential religious identity and uh, birthplace of gods and so on and so forth. That, that idea is still very much politically live today. And uh, I want to sort of use that as a way to think back uh, and then go back and revisit one of the one or two ideas that um, I, I work with in my book on the Ganges or, or the Ganga, which is the name of the book in, uh, in the Indian edition. I will use the word Ganges for now for, for um, um, sake of convenience, but you know, um, I have no particular malicious intent there. Uh, um, I, the, the goddess, of course, is Ganga, but so in, in, in my book, uh, uh, in the Ganges, uh, The Many Pasts of an Indian River, I, I look at um, the emergence of the, the valley, of the Gangetic Valley, as a kind of an Indian version of a middle country, um, a historic, political, and symbolic landscape. And um, it has to do with uh, the idea that, uh, in fact, the so-called uh, sort of Hindu pilgrimage uh, sort of sites along that, that river basin actually have a much deeper history of um, especially the legacy of Buddhism and Jainism. And then before that, uh, you know, any number of um, animism, um, animistic and, and, and indigenous cults that were sort of absorbed into many of these traditions and therefore arguing for a sort of plurality and uh, a, a sort of a mixed uh, legacy of, of the space. Um, so this middle country, a historic, political, and symbolic uh, sacred landscape cannot be neatly folded into sort of a unitary uh, monolithic Hinduism, which I think we all know. Uh, in fact, I argue in the book that that sacrality actually comes from things like uh, long centuries of, of uh, of Buddhism and, and Jainism and things like that. But uh, this river basin saw the rise and fall of kingdoms, empires, you know, the, the burgeoning and, and, and waning of various forms of, of trade and pilgrimage, both from within and, and connecting to outside of the, the boundaries of the subcontinent. But I also talk in the book about how the space was fought over across centuries uh, that uh, fights had witnessed building, destruction, sacking, looting of cities, markets, walls, forts, and places of worship. And this long and embattled history of the passing of regimes and the transmission of objects, artifacts, structures, the ideas of conquest and the assimilation of defeated or politically humbled tribes, kingdoms, empires, this entire panorama uh, and deep history of, of that legacy um, begs a central question about the entanglement of three objects of intellectual history that I think you might be interested in. I'm sure you are. One is, of course, the history of the political, uh, 
the history of the sacred and the history of the temporal. And these are connected. In what ways do past institutions, practices, customs, forms of religious beliefs persist or manifest their presence within the depths of all successive regimes, including the, the, the Turco-Mongol regimes that displaced previous regimes, um, and then of course, the coming of British rule. How are stretches of time enfolded within the temporal frames of the architectures of conquest? How does the epochal reckoning of history conjure up the ghosts of regimes past? And in what sense does, and this is where I borrow heavily from the historians of architectural spolia, uh, in what sense does a spoliation, and including ruins and remnants of monuments, evoke the sense of both loss and possession of the past itself? So that is uh, the opening gambit. Now, all historians of spolia, and not just architectural historians, wrestle with several questions. And, and again, uh, at the, the risk of repetition, I would say, you know, they ask the question, how are figures, emblems, buildings, structures, architectural spaces, assimilated, incorporated, reused, memorialized, or repatriated when a new regime comes in, especially after war and conquest? And then, of course, how do we reckon for those historical traces? What are the terms of such reuse? Is it simply the reuse of material from buildings destroyed or dismantled? And by the way, by this, I, I implicate especially the various kingdoms of, of Southern India, in fact, where much of this started. Um, and in fact, in my book, I, I talk a lot about the, the assimilation of the iconography of the Gangetic Valley in the South and the, the various fights between the Pallavas and the Chalukyas and the Chalukyas and the Cholas. Uh, is it the reuse then of materials of buildings, temples, uh, destroyed or dismantled pillars, domes, lintels, murals, or inscriptions? Or it's, is such appropriation a deeper reflection of the desire to consume, subsume, and rehabilitate the aesthetic and visceral presence of those regimes? Is it perhaps an oblique acknowledgement of the historical gravitas and character of the material past itself? Or, and sometimes this is what historians of Spoli also point to or, or hint at, is it an apotropaic gesture, uh, an evil eye to, to ward off a male violence and curse of the vanquished and the slain? Is it a prophylactic measure, like the circulation of the Sphinx image in ancient Greece? Uh, do fallen pillars or defaced images involve a magical transubstantiation of their potency? Are selective acts of despoliation, as in the stripping away of fragments of building structure, an attempt to put one's own mark on the past itself as a trophy? And many of these ideas are, are there in uh, either directly or indirectly in, in architectural history. My task today here is to speculate from there to talk about history itself. 
uh, not what history tells us about spolia, but what does spolia and spoliation tell us about history itself. Now, of course, one of the most commonly, commonly studied aspects of spoliation we study in India and in Indian history is the desecration and destruction of temples, the looting and recycling. First, uh, you know, recycling, then the destruction of images and the display of trophies in the temples and battlements of conquering regimes. Sometimes entire cities became the objects of despoliation, such as Varanasi and Kanauj, most famously Varanasi. And, and this often happened uh, along the valley of the Ganges. And in my book, I've tried to show how, in fact, Kanauj became the most invaded Indian city of all time, so much so that the architectural ruins of the place are sparse. Um, and a list of notable invaders of that city over centuries uh, show a remarkable succession of marches and sieges. Um, and by implication, the number of times when the city must have been deserted, depopulated, and rebuilt and re-inhabited uh, uh, re re at least 13 major times and 13 major invasions that took place between the 7th and the 13th centuries. I think in my book, I even have a list with all the dates and, and details in classic textbook fashion. So, you know, this included the Gurjara Pratiharas, the Rashtrakutas, the Parlas, the Chandelas, the Ghaznavids, the Gharavalas, and the Ghurids. And of course, if you think about uh, the Allahabad Treaty and the coming of British rule, then you can add that to this list. Now, Kanoj came into prominence as the ancestral stronghold of the Mokhari rulers. And Harshavardhana, if you recall from school book histories, made it the center of his sprawling empire. All the Harsha's dynasty came to an unexpected end after his death. The image of the imperial city on the Ganges had left a lasting impression on subsequent political imagination. Some of the earliest description of the city, such as in the work of the Chinese pilgrim and monk Xuanzang, uh, on the west bank of the Ganges speaks of its imposing waterfront battlements, towers and moats high on a cliff overlooking the passage of boats, pilgrims and traders, commanding in fact the fertile plains of the upper Ganga Yamuna, Dawab, um, uh, which was back then known as Antarvedi. It enjoyed a strategic military advantage over the rest of the, the valley. And in fact, the, as you know, the political focus has shifted from Eastern part of the Gangetic Valley, which was Magadha to that part later in that, at the end of the Gupta period. Noted for its abundance of temples, sacred bathing spots and pilgrim attractions, Kanoj was possibly as sacred as Varanasi of later times. And its name was, uh, you know, uh, actually sort of invoked in the genealogy. Uh, if, you, if you follow the caste history of India, a genealogy of Brahmins uh, often claim uh, sort of allegiance uh, to, to Kanauj, uh, which is, you know, it's, it's mythical and, and, and genealogical both. Um, and of course, the other city that we find in this sort of Kanauj Banaras nexus is, of course, a city which has now been um, uh, 
uh, renamed uh, the city of Allahabad, which actually had a name a long time ago, a perfectly fine name in the Tirtha Chintamani in the 12th century, Tirtharaja, the king of pilgrimages. But of course, sometimes when we rename places, we don't necessarily want to look up the history of that place. I'll leave it at that for now. Uh, this was the place which appeared as Allahabad, thanks to Akbar, on the Mohal map. Um, I invoke Kanauj here, um, along with Prayag and, and Varanasi, as emblematic of this Middle Gangetic Kingdom, because this is the one of the prime crucibles of the Indian historical imaginary, and we are, as I said before, still spilling the blood uh, over its monumental legacies. Now, um, I just want to make one point that, you know, this, this idea of the Madjima Desha, which is a Buddhist concept, concept originally, the Middle Kingdom, actually is a, in some ways a shift away from the old Brahminical um, and, and Vedic conception of, 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 of sacred land. And there, you know, this is something that I explore in the book about, you know, you know which parts of, of, of the Northern Indian uh, sort of geographical spatial imaginary are sort of, uh, you know, appropriate for certain kinds of worship and where, you know, you begin to encounter people, uh, you know, who are not part of the sacred domain. Um, but I just want to say that that was redefined because of the, of the, uh, the great resurgence, uh, uh, especially of Mahayana Buddhism for over the long centuries. But we can maybe talk about that later. That's not the main focus of this talk. Now, one of the ways to appreciate the conception and fight over this sort of space um, that I've described as a fundamental core of the Indian geographical and historical imaginary is to try and conceive of, of an erasure of the line between what we call political and with what we call sacred. Just as Hindu regimes of the ninth or 10th centuries fought each other over the historic legacy of such spaces, and therefore the various kingdoms dating even back to the time of Ashokan antiquity, uh, so must have the Ghurids and the Mamluks who had succeeded them. In such a reimagining, one could think of the reclamation of things like pillars and lintels and, and images, defaced images from the ruins of Buddhist, Hindu and Jain structures at places such as the Qutub Minar, not just as the appropriation of objects and symbols of defeated regimes and kings, but indeed the antiquity and the historical legacy of, and this is a word that we have to use a little bit more carefully, pre-Islamic uh, rulers and regimes, in a manner very similar to the Umayyads in Cordoba, uh, Spain, or the Abbasids in the former realms of the Byzantine Empire or in Sasanian lands. Um, now, the history of, of, of spoliation and spolia and architectural borrowings go back to, of course, the entire, you know, the terminology comes from a Roman precedent. So I, I must sort of give you a little um, cameo of what we, you know, what we have from Rome, and especially because much of this language was, was uh, put in place again in the, in the uh, annals of uh, British colonial architectural uh, description of India. And that Roman precedence is worth 
uh, going back to. In, in the Roman case, the seizure of objects as talismans from, defeated, from the defeated were symbolic appropriations of the strengths of one's enemy, which is why weapons of fallen combatants were so prized by Roman patricians and plebeians alike. The sack of temples and capture of idols, particularly noteworthy in the Roman campaigns waged against the Greek islands of the Aegean, intended to strip the enemy of its divine protection. Graven images of conquered regimes ended up in imperial treasury as well as in private collections as cumulative inventories of past campaigns and laurels. At times, such spolia also served to reaffirm the supreme virtues, the pietas of the Roman gods and Roman ways of worship. The display and public affirmation of trophies in the temple of Jupiter, the adornment of patrician villas with shields, enemy standards, broken off beaks of vessels destroyed in naval combats, show a, a rich harvest of the militarized society of Rome, which coveted the relics of worthy foes, especially those collected from distant and exotic frontiers of the empire. The Roman case is instructive in thinking about societies that were oriented towards routine warfare. By the way, the Romans also worried about the legal precedent, about this kind of seizure. Cicero talks a lot about it. And then, of course, you know, if you look at the history of the early Islamic empires, you can see a tremendous amount of um, sort of uh, writing on uh, what is jais and you know, what is allowed, what is not in terms of actual spoliation, ghanima and the distribution of spoils, who gets to keep it, who gets to distribute it. So there's a long legacy here. Um, we can invoke in the Roman case, the example of plunder during the siege of the Greek islands. Uh, he wear arms and armor of enemy chieftains slain in distant battlefields were, were taken. Idols were taken from temples, agoras and shrines and how they were reinstated in Roman shrines. You can see the, the collection of paintings, sculptures and other objects of art that poured in from the Greek campaigns. As uh, Margaret Miles, uh, the architectural historian points out, the most sought after prizes of war in the Roman case were objects from personal collections. This is referred to as spolia in se, statues, paintings, vessels of precious metal, textiles, carved objects of wood and ivory dedicated to sanctuaries and buildings. Reading the Roman uh, history sort of gives um, us a certain kind of appreciation of, of a similar process, which you know, has been still not fully understood in the Indian context. Now, in the case of Indian history, there's an exceptionalism. And the exceptionalism is the so-called history of quote unquote, Islamic conquest of India. And this exceptionalism, I would argue, places an equally exceptional burden on the history of spolia and spoliation. And as you can imagine, not only did it animate a certain colonial conception of Indian history, but of course, that in turn animates today a certain nationalistic and um, uh, maybe sometimes unfortunate uh, in, in certain renditions, uh, a reckoning of, of, this, uh, uh, of this past in Indian political practice. Now, I will not go here into the question of whether such kind of a periodization of Islamic conquest is uh, warranted, appropriate or not. 
or how such epochal divides might be motivated by colonial nationalist or uh, contemporary religious imaginaries. But this is a, a, a sign and a period in which the history of spolia takes a center stage in the history Indian historical imagination, this particular period. The reckoning of an autochthonous past has been at least since colonial times fraught or injected with a sense of loss, dispossession, especially over the history of the selective appropriation and reuse of buildings and materials from the Hindu Jain Buddhist antiquity as an essential, is an essential part of its history. And this is where the Kutub Minar sort of shines as a, the gallery of this kind of a, or, or a museology of this kind of history. Just as the appropriation of Roman, Roman antiquities are key to the making of Carolingian monuments in Europe, this, these are the, uh, the makings of uh, a, a particular kind of Hindu read Indian antiquity, except that they do not evoke feelings, those in Carolingian Europe, uh, they do not evoke feelings of national or popular antipathy between the French and the Italians today, unless I'm mis mistaken. And you should tell me if that is the case. Uh, they bear witness uh, to the role of architecture in absorbing bits and pieces of this material past, which as another very famous historian, uh, Maria Hansen has pointed out, is an essential element of all forms of architectural spolia. In this regard, structures like the Ark of Constantine in Rome and its layers of recycled fragments of previous reliefs and, you know, and, and artifacts pose a fundamental challenge to the auth very authenticity and historical and, and temporal placement of objects. They remind us that fragments put together in different epochs have their own unique aura and significance. And this is a second lesson that we can draw from the architectural historians who study spolia, which is that it is really not about appropriation always, it is also about acknowledgement, even perhaps gratitude. Architectural historians such as Richard Brilliant, therefore make a distinction between spolia in se, which I've invoked already, and spolia in re, re meaning things, rerum, uh, Latin, the taking of material objects and the making of virtual entities. Spolia and re might include, for instance, books, libraries, texts, formula, charms, incantations, forms of knowledge, forms of decoding, forms of translation, the Rosetta Stone. Now my emphasis in the rest of this talk is the second aspect, the appropriation of texts and objects of histories along with monuments of the past and in fact, therefore time itself. And therefore the tongue in cheek, the theft of time. I want to emphasize the persistence, resilience, resumption of this kind of a past, not just in the sense of antiquity, but certain forms of temporal reckoning that are, I believe are at the heart of the lingering spectral and uh, emotional quality of spolia as the object of history. We, we cannot get rid of that. Now I'm going to place before you two examples of the ways in which the past appropriation of objects and artifacts might usefully perplex a simple narrative 
of spoliation that we are familiar with. Now I start therefore with Ashokan's Ashokan pillars. Think of the Ashokan pillars, which are staple of undergraduate history textbooks that we are familiar with. The pillars bearing the edicts of the Mauryan emperor Ashoka made of sandstone quarried near the Kaimur Hills in Chunar, the Mizapur district of UP, a place that I've visited many times, chiseled there and transported to various sites during the third century BC. Now Ashoka himself was a great appreciator of, of past objects. He after all dug up any number of stupas and redistributed the relics across the Ashokan imperial landscape. The, the most famous of these uh, pillars was the Allahabad pillar with the Allahabad pillar inscription, which not only bears Ashoka's message to his subjects, but also the inscription of the fourth century Gupta imperial monarch, Samudra Gupta. And on top of that, the 17th century Mughal emperor Jahangir. Reinstalled during Jahangir's father Akbar's reign from its original location uh, uh, to the great fort on the Ganges overlooking the Praya confluence. Similarly, both the Delhi Topra pillar that stands over the palace now in ruins of Firo Shakotla and the De Delhi Mirat pillar, both transported by wheeled cars and, and then, of course, barges along the Jamuna River during the 15th century by the very curious and perhaps uh, amateur scholar historian of the time, the Delhi Sultan Firoz Shah, who has been lavishly praised by uh, early British historians for his um, antiquarian impulses <laughs> during the Tughlaq dynasty. Now this kind of palimpsest of successive regimes in terms of murals and inscriptions is very much for me within the purview of spolia. But my question is that while we are so uh, uh, excited about uh, the defacement of images and the uh, and the appropriation of pillars, why does not the successive the appropriation of these pillars invoke any kind of similar outrage? Uh, and that is because you know we are in fact um, sort of conditioned in some ways to think about different forms of appropriation as as different forms of national outrage. Um, and this goes back, in fact, to the way in which some of the historians and uh, uh, scholars of architecture in, in British India um, also tried to figure and sort out good from bad spolia, to use a shorthand. I'm going to give you the example of Vincent Smith, uh, who in the, the Asiatic Society pages, uh, in a ve very well-known exposition on the Iron Pillar of Merauli, speculating on its origins and transportation to Delhi during the period of the Pala dynasty and debating whether it was Anangapala the second or so on and so forth, set the context for this architectural marvel by first describing the Kutub Minar uh, as a kind of setting of the pillar and Kutub Minar's architectural sleight of hand. Remember, he's describing the iron pillar, but then he's commenting also in the same breath on the, on the courtyard of the Qutub Minar. He notes how the courtyard and the main structure was fashioned out of the pillars of Hindu and Jain temples. And I quote him, these temples were with slight exception, utterly overthrown so that 
one stone was not left upon another. This is unquote. And then he says, goes on to say, the ground on which the mosque stood uh, was, quote, the original undisturbed platform of a Hindu temple. And the quote again, Mohammedans left intact the beautifully constructed double flooring resting on its massive rubble foundation. And this is a, these, these are very interesting words. What is fascinating about Smith's account is that the very same passages where he decries the crass appropriation of Hindu and Jain columns in the construction of the Qutub Minar, he also describes the installation of Ashokan pillars, as I said, in Firoz Shah Kotla. Uh, again, branching off from the commentary of the Iron Pillar. Firoz Shah, as, as I said before, did not destroy a monument, but in, in, a, in the routine act of royal prerogative, simply repaired and reclaimed these pillars, exhibiting a fine sense of antiquarian curiosity. In this Smith averse, I quote, uh, it's quite, quite delightful. <laughs> he acted, in fact, in the same way as kings of all ages. And the immense pains he took to move Ashoka's monoliths from Meerut and Chopra to Delhi, from Kosambi to Prayag, along the river Yamuna in boats, was, and again, <laughs> Smith here, just like Napoleon and other princes who have taken similar troubles to, quote, obtain possessions of Egyptian obelisks for the decorations of their capitals. It's a, it's a small example from a particular historian, but I, I, I hope you can share my wonderment at, at this kind of uh, double notes of history. Now, famously in the Jami Masjid of Kanoj, again, back to Kanoj, James Ferguson, the doyen of architectural historians of 19th century India, insisted on certain rules of thumb separating the elements of the Hindu from what he called the elements of the Saracenic style. In the early mosques, he notes the Muslim rulers, quote, appropriated the remains of Jaina architecture to save themselves the trouble of erecting the whole building from original materials. Vexed by the resulting jumble of what appeared as historically and artistically incompatible, Ferguson searched for the exact seams, the lines where the forms of Muslim and Hindu architecture had been joined, had been plastered, had been sort of sutured together. Looking at the Jami Masjid in Kanoji, converted uh, from a Hindu temple by Ibrahim Shah of Jaunpur in early 15th century, Ferguson described it as, quote, undoubtedly a Jain temple rearranged on a plan similar to a mosque in Cairo. The roof and dome were pure examples of Jain architecture, so that, quote, no trace of the Moorish style is seen internally. He's not comparing this to the, uh, the Ghurids, uh, you know, Mamluk, uh, the mosques of the Sultanate. He's comparing it directly to uh, the, um, the, the Islamic architecture as evident in, in different Mamluks, the Mamluks of Cairo. At the Great Qutub Minar, near the roof and in less visible areas, he no noted the fragments of cross-legged figures belonging to giant saints, which he called uh, Hindu remains. And architecture here uh, for, for um, Ferguson, therefore, presents the indisputable and visible reminder 
of Islamic conquest, Islamic triumph and Hindu adversity, but equally importantly, uh, the line drawn between Hindu and Saracenic, not simply a technical demarcation of architectural style, but in fact, I would suggest the sign of incompatible histories clearly marking one epoch from the other. So we move in fact in the same notes uh, in a different register uh, to a, a, a certain kind of uh, reckoning of time. The Imperial Gazetteer published at the turn of the century uh, because you know this was one of the most widely read things uh, in its chapter on Indian architecture, distilling Ferguson, put it in this way. A quote, what is popularly known as Saracenic architecture in this style was adopted by the Mohammedans when they became the ruling race in India. So here note the, the word um, religion has been replaced by the word race. This is exactly the kind of historical demarcation that was popularized by James Todd in his wildly and widely popular Annals and Antiquities of Rajasthan, much read, much admired, where he wrote the definitive elegy of the death of uh, the great Prithviraj Chauhan slain during the valiant fight against Shahabuddin Ghuri. I've been working on uh, a, a different project, which is to say how Beng Bengali historians and especially novelists before historians got absolutely smitten with Todd. Um, Todd li lives, uh, we know this already. I mean, Todd lives as uh, well and alive in the, in the passages and annals of Indian history even today. Um, now we can say, going back to Todd, uh, and this takes us back to the beginning of this talk, that the Islamic conquerors had finally broken down the defense of India's middle kingdom and reached the supposed inner sanctum. And the ultimate ignominy of this vanquishing was not just the fall of Kanoj, but the desecration of the holy city of Varanasi or Banaras, which is very interesting in many ways. Um, after Varanasi fell to the Turks, there were, quoting Todd, scenes of devastation, plunder, and massacre that lasted through the ages, laments Todd, one of the most celebrated passages, I'm sure you've heard, read it before, and quote, all that was sacred in religion and celebrated in art was destroyed by these ruthless and barbarous invaders. The word sacred here has been replaced uh, now with the idea of uh, uh, you know, uh, desecration and, and, um, and history really, as if, as if, as if this was a, a, a land which had been showed up from the ravages of time and, and conquest, but now open to uh, spoliation, which is historically the opposite of what, you know, at least Karoz tells us. In this and other instances, we see that in fact, the history of Islamic conquest and Hindu defeat has already become a part of the historic antecedents of empire and colonial rule integral to its own temporal succession, explanatory logic, and historical muse. Uh, maybe you can even, sometimes I, I'd like to think of it as a kind of historical picturesque with the ruins in place. I mean, think of uh, 
the famous cartouche of James Rendell in the memo in the map of Hindustan, where where the Brahmins are uh, exchanging knowledge with Britannia. Uh, I, this is the image that well, you know this image, so I don't have to show it to you. There's always the temple is always there at a very far distance, and um, and that tells you something about uh, the reminder of the of Hindu antiquity in, in a map of of of, of a newly asserted. Uh, emergent and ascendant uh, company regime. So the appropriation of Todd in the early nationalist historical imaginary uh, about the enslaving invasion of India and the end of Hindu India, the idea that the Turkish invaders denied Indians their rightful inheritance, and most importantly, the yearning for a far distant past where the Hindus were the sovereign subjects of their history is plainly evident in the, the writings of nationalists. So I'm gonna take you to one last vignette. And this is uh, a very interesting character. And you know who this is, R.C. Dutt, a distinguished Indian civil servant, congressman, economic historian, one of the architects of the drain theory, in that sense, uh, a nationalist par excellence. And Maybe you know this, or maybe you have forgotten one of the earlier exponents of the historical novel in Bengali. That was taken much with the history of the decline of the Rajput warriors of Western India and composed an early novel known as Rajput Jiban Shandha, which translates as The Twilight of Rajput Life, uh, inspired by Colonel Todd. Uh, by the way, this inspiration of Todd goes back to uh, the, the young Bengal and the poets such as Michael Madhusudan Dutt, uh, a different paper I've written about how uh, Todd was appropriated by the students of Henry Louis Vivian de Rosio, uh, which, is, which makes interesting reading in itself, but maybe for another time. This is inspired by Thor's stirring passages on Rajput bravery against the Mughals. At the end of the novel, if you ever look it up, Dutt excerpts a passage from Todd, from the Annals and Antiquities of Rajasthan, where he remarks on the valor and resistance of Rana Pratap of Mewar, who defied Akbar but, and refused to surrender to the Mughal forces and ran away on his favorite horse, Chetak, etc. As we knew, I had to study in school book histories in India. Uh, the, you know, the Indian Bukifellas, as it were. In his novel, uh, and another novel celebrating the rise of Shivaji and the Maratha resurgence against Mughal rule in another novel, subsequent novel called, and I'm not making this up, Maharashtra Jiban Prabhat, uh, The Dawn of Maharashtrian Life, thus describes the journey of Shivaji in this novel. He is going to meet Aurangzeb to Imperial Delhi, where he is thinking about joining Aurangzeb's court quite vexed by the fact that he has been invited by uh, uh, the Mughal Rajputs uh, who have invited him to. And his contemporary, if, if you know, Man Singh and people like that are part of this uh, noble retinue of the Mughals, can I as a Hindu sort of join? In a remarkable passage in which Shivaji is traveling in old Delhi, imagine this, uh, uh, that uh, speaks in Shivaji's voice, as it were, and it describes Shivaji's uh, reckoning with, with, with Indian history. 
And I'm going to just read that passage I've translated for you. Uh, uh, and I quote, the entire way was full of the ruins of old Muslim palaces. The first Muslims had established their capital near the old fort of Pithurai, Prithiraj, soon after having conquered Delhi. And thus one can see the remnants of mosques, palaces, and mausoleums at that spot. And the world famous Qutub Minar was built here as well. In course of time, newer emperors began to raise new palaces and residences further north, and the city gradually began to spread north. Shivaji could not count how many palaces, mosques, and minarets, how many ruins of pillars and tombs he saw on the way. As Shivaji traverses this landscape of ruins, readers of the novel are treated to a panoramic view of history and the relics and successions of the aspirants to the throne of Delhi, Afghans, Lodhis, Mughals. When Shivaji passes these tombs and cemeteries, his thoughts turn predictably to the passage of historical time itself. While coming from the fort of Prithurai to modern Delhi, note the word modern, uh, Shivaji felt as if the history of India had been inscribed on that very highway. Each palace and each mansion were a, page of the, were a page of that history, each cemetery a letter. Remorseless time was the historian, or else why would history have been written in such a script? Now, as the art historian Barry Flood has suggested, uh, very, very uh, provocatively and in interestingly, we need to reconsider iconoclasm, for instance, in a very different way the destruction of temples. Not simply as a universal sign of conquest, destruction, desecration, defacement, or recycling, or the redefinition of images and monuments, but acts that must be understood within very specific historical and spatial contexts. Um, and, and this is a subject that we cannot enter in, into today because it, my talk is really uh, borrowing from the work of historians of spolia and architecture, history and uh, uh, historians of architecture, uh, I'm really musing on the possibilities of that kind of, of work and what it, what it means for the way we think about historic, historical time and temporal affect. Um, the histories of conquest of spo and, and spoliation are woven into the texture of Indian colonial and nationalist historiography in a very different way. And the way they are woven into this historiography, in fact, betray an underlying temporal, emotional affect and epochal consciousness. Mere assertions of the complexity of historical agency, uh, you know, the various political minutiae of who defeated whom and who took what from whom, um, the defeats and conquests of regimes cannot therefore easily dislodge such deeply ingrained imaginaries because of the long uh, antiquity and sort of history of the views of the past that have uh, animated the practice of Indian history over a long period of time. Here today, um, I have indulged you and tried to uh, present a different way of thinking about spolia, not just as desecration or usurpation, but as claims over the past itself. 
before we can change the terms of such reckoning of history, of antiquity, of age and epoch, we need to understand the depth and complexity of the relationship between the idea of spolia and time itself. And time by this, I don't mean necessarily historical time or chronology, I mean a certain kind of regime of temporality or regimes of temporality. With that last thought, um, I will um, open it this uh, to, to, to questions. This is a very open-ended um, exploration. I have not moved on to, uh, there, there's a, there could be easily a corollary here to, uh, you know, the, the Elgin marbles, you know, the, the reconstruction of the Barut stoop in the Imperial Museum, which today is the Indian Museum in, in Calcutta. And uh, people I can see already in chats, people talking about that. Um, maybe, you know, uh, that's, that's, a, that's something that we can discuss. Um, but the notes of the appropriation of, of the Archaeological Survey of India, et cetera, are, are a little bit different from the way in which, you know, we have thought about the history of, uh, of buildings in, in a pre-colonial period. But um, yeah, so that is all I have to say today. And uh, I hope I have not uh, offended anybody too much.